0: Pod Save the World is brought to you by Parachute. Parachute wants to know, what's your favorite thing about fall? Voting for Democrats in the midterm. Cozy slippers, cable knit sweaters, pumpkin spice lattes. Wrong. The best part about fall is having an excuse not to leave your bed, that and the slippers. That's and a, voting. That's a good answer. And voting. And uh, yeah, it feels like fall. We're sitting here recording this in New York City. Very fallish uh, here. I forgot that thermostats could go below 60. It was a bit jarring this morning, but I'm okay. I feel great. It's, there's a crispness in the air. I uh, didn't help to pack nine t-shirts and nothing else. But anyway, visit parachutehome.com slash crookedworlds for free shipping and returns on Parachute's premium quality ultra soft bedding and bath linens. Like I said, we're on the road. One of the worst parts is going from your parachute sheets to a, to a non-parachute bed. It is jarring disorienting. You need a parachute sheet. Hotels should buy parachute sheets. They should. If you run a hotel chain and you listen to this pod. And they offer a 60-day trial, so if you don't love your new stuff, just send it back. That's ParachuteHome.com slash Crooked World for free shipping and returns on parachutes premium quality, ultra soft bedding, and bath linens. ParachuteHome.com slash Crooked World.
1: Hey, welcome to Pod Save the World. I'm Ben Rhodes, sitting in for Tommy, who is on the road. He will be In Philadelphia for the next Pod Save America HBO show, where he'll also be joined by Chrissy Houlihan, a great candidate we have in Pennsylvania on the Democratic side, uh, somebody who has a national security background. And that's what we'll be talking about today and hearing from a few candidates uh, who both have served either in the military or national security positions and now are are taking that into politics and and hopefully helping us take back the House. Before we get to that first interview, I just want to uh, review one news of the day item, which is we are now over three weeks uh, since the really brutal murder of Jamal Khashoggi, uh, a journalist in the Saudi consulate in Turkey. And I think it cannot be overstated just how consequential this last few weeks has been, (laughs) because essentially what you have is an obvious murder of a guy who goes into a consulate, to silence a very prominent voice of dissent of the Saudi regime. It teaches us something about the Saudi government that, frankly, a lot of us had always thought, which is that this is a leader of Saudi Arabia, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, more interested in consolidating his own power and cracking down on any dissent uh, than he is on some vision of modernization that he's been uh, essentially touting across the United States. But also, it says something profound about the Trump administration, who from the very first uh, weeks in office has thrown Mohammed bin Salman in a full embrace. Uh, Trump's first trip as president was to Saudi Arabia. Uh, He consistently praised, heaped praise on Mohammed bin Salman. He deputized his son-in-law to essentially run this relationship between the two of them. He did nothing and, in fact, welcomed it when Saudi Arabia escalated its misguided war in Yemen, uh, causing the largest humanitarian crisis we uh, were currently facing in the world today. He did nothing when the Saudi prince detained large numbers of his own family uh, in the Ritz-Carlton in Riyadh. And, in fact, there are even reports that, that Jared Kushner may have helped him identify uh, who some of those internal critics were. Trump did nothing when the Saudi government detained in kind of a hostage situation the prime minister of Lebanon in their country. So time and again, we've seen Trump give this Saudi government a pass and particularly give Mohammed bin Salman a pass. Then we saw him get this kind of hero's welcome to the United States earlier this year, where he was celebrated by all aspects of the American establishment fawning pieces in the New York Times and the Washington Post. Uh, you had the business elite lining up to meet with Mohammed bin Salman. You had the entertainment industry doing the same thing. And of course, Trump rolling out this red carpet. So even before the Jamal Khashoggi murder, despite all the warning signs that this young leader, and he's only in his early 30s, that he was moving in a more authoritarian direction and a more belligerent foreign policy direction, despite all of that we see him being rewarded. And I think, you know, the end result of this gruesome murder, getting the attention it's gotten, it should also shine a light on, you know, what this relationship with Saudi Arabia is, and whether we really need it. Um, Because Trump has been acting like we're the weaker partner, and the Saudis are the stronger partner, and it's the reverse. And I think it's time that we as Americans start saying, why are we selling arms to this country? Because essentially, there's this kind of captive argument that people make, oh, we need the Saudis, but I served in government for eight years. Yes, we'd like to cooperate with them to counter terrorism. Uh, yes, they're a, a rich country, they buy a lot of arms from us, but uh, it's not like we need them in some existential way. We can exert leverage in this relationship. Uh, and frankly, the more we get ourselves off of foreign oil, uh, the less we need them. So hopefully this can be a clarifying moment, if not for President Trump, for the rest of the country. And I will say there are profound consequences just in the rest of the world, seeing the American president not standing up for a journalist who was murdered and not holding this regime to account. It's another chink in our armor. It's another blow to our credibility. That is another reason to vote in two weeks here. Again, I know national security is not front and center, but not having a check on a president (laughs) who uh, totally abandons our uh, values, who refuses to stand up for uh, journalists around the world, indeed calls journalists at home the enemy of the state and then coddles dictators who murder journalists. Congress can be a check on that. Congress can hold him to account. Congress can change the nature of our relationship with Saudi Arabia. That can be done before we have a different person in the White House. Uh, And frankly, just electing a democratic Congress will send a message to the rest of the world that this is not who we are. The way Trump has been acting is not who we are. Um, The rest of the world, I can tell you, I travel and talk to people, are watching this election very closely, and we can show the world another side of America with how we vote. We can show the world that no, Trump is not who America is, which is what people around the world are wondering since the 2016 election. So with that, we've got uh, three great candidates coming up. The first is Stephanie Murphy, who worked in the Defense Department and then decided to run for Congress in 2016 after the mass shooting at the Pulse nightclub because she was so disgusted with uh, the grip that the NRA had on the politics in Florida and the person that she ran against and beat in a very tough district. Stephanie has a great personal story, too, uh, having come here to the United States, uh, fleeing Vietnam, on boats with her family and building a true all-American success story here. So we'll hear from uh, Stephanie first about her recent visit to Saudi Arabia and how she's looking at that issue. We are very pleased to be joined here on Pod of the World by Congresswoman uh, Stephanie Murphy, one of the most exciting, promising, dynamic uh, young members of Congress in the Democratic Party also uh, someone who worked in national security herself before coming into Congress. Uh, So great to be with you, Congresswoman.
2: Thanks so much, Ben, for having me on and for such a kind introduction.
1: (laughs) Well, look, I I wanted to start uh, just because it's on everybody's mind uh, with the Jamal Khashoggi murder and the response from uh, the Trump White House. But I thought we could start by talking about the trip you took to Saudi Arabia earlier this year, a congressional delegation that you were on and I, I just wanted to know if you could share with the listeners the impressions that you took away from that trip, which obviously was right around the time that Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, was was really beginning to assert himself more aggressively.
2: Sure. I, I took a trip in January of 2018, so the beginning of this year, with six other Republicans and me. Uh, so I was the only Democrat on the trip, um, and the congressional delegation was led by Speaker Ryan. And we uh, went to the Middle East and met with both King Salman as well as the Crown Prince and some others in the foreign Ministry. You know, my impressions were mixed. Um, I think on the one hand, MBS was personally charismatic and friendly, and he spoke about you know his ongoing efforts to grant Saudi women additional rights. They had just been permitted to go to their first soccer game um, shortly before we were there, as well as They were planning on allowing women to drive in in a few months after our trip and he also spoke about the need for the U.S. and Saudi to work together to contain Iran and combat terrorist organizations. So on the one hand, I think the delegation really liked hearing those things. On the other hand, I think we were all very well aware of MBS's efforts to consolidate power within the royal family. In fact, while we were there, uh, he was imprisoning members of the Saudi elite at a hotel in Riyadh, and you know he was spearheading the Saudi intervention in Yemen's civil war. And that intervention in Yemen has contributed to a severe humanitarian crisis. I think today we're at 13 million at risk of famine. But it was a mixed impressions. And and I'll admit that I was probably one of the only members of the delegation to press MBS on human rights issues Mm -hmm. and the humanitarian crisis in Yemen. And I'll give Speaker Ryan credit for giving me the space to ask those questions and to express a, a view that uh, was separate than some of my Republican colleagues.
1: Yeah. Did he you know, bother to respond much to your concerns about Yemen or human rights or did he kind of blow right through that?
2: You know, his, they had just released some amount of humanitarian assistance for Yemen, so he yeah.
1: um,
2: noted that. But really, they, he fell back on the argument that Iran is an existential threat yeah. for um, Saudi Arabia, and as a result... Iran's uh, engagement in Yemen was really uh, the reason why they were pursuing um, their intervention in the way that they were. Is that they see Iran as an existential threat?
1: Yeah. Well, it, looking back in the last couple of years, it does strike me to your point that you know they were happy with the election outcome. They they were no fans of Obama. I'm wondering what to what extent you feel like they may have taken the wrong signal, the Saudis, that. You know, they had almost a sense of impunity that they could do whatever they wanted. They could escalate that war in Yemen even after the humanitarian crisis was out of control. They could ultimately kill this journalist. Do you you think kind of they may have taken the wrong message from the type of relationship they were building with, uh, in particular, Trump and other parts of the American establishment?
2: certainly in evaluating where this white house is um, listening to some of the rhetoric coming out of the white house the president's you know sort of constant denigration of the press corps um, yeah. and undermining of the right to free press which is enshrined in our constitution we're seeing it's not just dangerous domestically it, it can give people an impression of uh... what our priorities are um, it can also serve to embolden authoritarian leaders and give them a sense of impunity as they deal with their yeah. own critics in the press And also, I think it would be fair to say that this administration has sort of de-emphasized the human rights promotion as a key element of American foreign policy. And so that could give foreign leaders the impression that there's no longer any meaningful limits to their conduct and that their relationship with the U.S. will not be affected. The one piece that I find hopeful, though, is that in this most recent, just shocking, murder of uh, a journalist, that... You know, Congress, in a bipartisan way, is responding even if the White House isn't yet ready to do so. And in addition to Congress responding, we're seeing corporate America reflect American values. The withdrawal of the media and tech companies, as well as J.P. Morgan and Ford from the uh, investor conference, it demonstrates that American values can be reflected in a broad set of actors, not just out of the White House.
1: Well, I was going to ask, you know, what do you think Congress could do further? Do you believe it's appropriate for Congress to you know, really start inserting itself into the U.S.-Saudi relationship on issues like the war in Yemen or arms sales to Saudi Arabia or sanctions, uh, if this Khashoggi investigation continues to be kind of the, the sham investigation that it appears to be, uh, particularly if Democrats have control of the House where you serve. Do, do you think there's a role for, for kind of legislative action by Congress, or is it more an oversight approach?
2: I think it should be both. I mean, the way that our democracy is founded, Congress is meant to balance and check the darker impulses of the executive branch. And I think that it's absolutely imperative. It's, uh, I think Madeleine Albright calls it an article one moment. It's one of these moments where Congress absolutely must exercise its support. And I think at the end of the day, what members of Congress need to remember is that they took an oath, and that oath is to defend the Constitution um, and America from threats, foreign and domestic. And their allegiance is to upholding the Constitution into the American people, not to any particular president or any particular party. And so um, giving uh, an administration a pass on issues that are of utmost uh, importance to our national security and uh, America's place in the world uh, shouldn't be what Congress should be doing. They they absolutely should be exercising their powers.
1: And, you know, when you look at those options... Do you think that, you know, it's time to essentially try to use pressure to you know, withdraw support for the war in Yemen, for instance, or would you focus more on uh, trying to pressure the Saudis on the internal human rights situation through either, you know, shining a spotlight or sanctions, um, uh, or do you, are you kind of looking at, across uh, the board at the, the relationship in, in light of the Khashoggi murder?
2: You know, I think first we need a full accounting of the Khashoggi murder. I think that it's really important that the U.S. intelligence community prepare an analysis on what they believe occurred Mm -hmm. and that we should believe them and that the president should believe them. And once we know what happened and who was involved, then we should take a look at uh, the range of options that we have um, in front of us to respond to what happened. But I think it has to be also in the context that, you know, We want to encourage them to continue the positive steps that we're seeing inside the kingdom with respect to women's rights and economic diversification. But we want to make sure that if they were involved in this brutal murder and this attack on free press, that uh, there are consequences for that. And we should recognize and use whatever leverage that we have um, with a sense of humility that we can't dictate Saudi behavior, but we certainly can try to shape it.
3: Well, look,
1: I wanted to shift gears here. Just uh, We're talking about the many Democrats running who have a national security background. Now, you worked in the defense department for the Secretary of Defense. And I just wondered if you could share your view, now you've been in Congress for two years, about you know, what that experience in national security, how that helped inform you as both a politician and then ultimately as a, a sitting member of Congress.
2: Sure, and I'll I'll note that I worked in the office of Secretary of Defense under a Republican president. So I was there um, working under Secretary Rumsfeld as well as Secretary Gates, Um, but it was George W. Bush that was president. And so for me, that was my first experience in public service, and. I found that at that department, we sort of suppressed our political opinions and just focused on the mission. And it was all about putting our country first, above politics, um, pursuing a national security strategy that could keep this country safe. And I think that that's a healthy perspective um, for me to carry on into Congress where things are so hyper-partisan in Washington. But in my district, people don't walk around saying, oh, I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican or I'm a no-party affiliate. They're just saying, oh, I have to deal with, you know, high prescription costs or the high cost of health care or I I need a well-paying job with quality benefits. They're dealing with the day-to-day which isn't necessarily split into political uh, problems, they're just American problems. And I think having that first public service experience be one that was just focused on mission and serving the American people is a really good perspective to take into kind of our hyper-partisan congressional atmosphere. And then I think the other thing that's really um, been helpful is I got a chance to work on a broad range of national security issues, and those things are complicated. And if you're not somebody who's worked on those issues for a long time, you know, you cover down on a a wide range of issues as a member of Congress, and it was really a leg up for me to already have some experience with that and also have a sense of how the executive branch uh, interprets legislative or congressional intent and legislative agenda. That's also been really helpful because it helps my office craft our correspondence with the executive branch in a way um, that hopefully leads to better results.
1: I know that part of what compelled you to run for Congress in the first place was the mass shooting in Florida and uh, the gun issue broadly, and i 'm wondering you know, having looked at the you know the security of the country from the perspective of you know sitting in the Pentagon and now looking at the issue of guns, why guns aren 't seen more as a national security issue, and essentially you know they take the lives of so many more people than terrorist attacks, is there a way to kind of approach particularly some of these high-capacity guns like AR-15s as, as more of a national security threat as a means of trying to get it under control?
2: When I talk about security, I talk about strong and smart national security that keeps us safe from foreign threats, but also about domestic security that keeps us safe from gun violence. Um, having worked with folks who were trained For those weapons that you you talked about um, meant to cause the greatest damage on a battlefield, I know that those battlefield weapons don't have a place in my communities, on our community streets. And so it really is something that I work really hard on to try to cast that issue in the light that it is, which is it's a public health crisis. Here in this country, I'm proud to say that I uh, led an initiative to lift the 22-year ban on gun violence research because I believe uh, when we legislate, we have to start with the facts. And this, even though it's a big public health crisis, we don't have data around this issue. And um, maybe it's my uh, DOD training that has me looking for, you know, intel and and the facts and data um, that drives me to try to attack this problem the same way.
1: Well, look, a common thread here, you know, making decisions about Saudi Arabia informed by our intelligence, making decisions based on data as it relates to gun violence. I I think that's a healthy attitude uh, that we hope uh, more of our members of Congress would take. Great. Well, look, uh, we really appreciate Congresswoman Stephanie Murphy joining us, and she's in the 7th District of Florida. If you're looking for someone to support, to knock doors, to make phone calls, and of course, Exciting candidates uh, up and down that ballot in Florida, with a, a great candidate for governor, Andrew Gillum, and a very important Senate race with Senator Nelson. So, lots of work to do in Florida, but uh, we're glad you're out there doing it on on the on the trail and in the halls of Congress, uh, Stephanie Murphy. So, thanks for being with us.
2: Thanks so much, man. I appreciate it.
1: John, Posse the World
0: is brought to you by the Financial Times. Oh, aren't you fancy? Yeah. <laughs> The FT, as they call it in the biz, is one of the world's <laughs> leading business news organizations recognized internationally for its authority, integrity, and accuracy. Look at that. They even spelled organization with an S and not a Z. Oh, that's funny. So you know uh, we're talking about the FT. When I was still working on the National Security Council, uh, I went to the FT offices in London with Tom Donilon, and it was very cool. Oh, just a little shout out me shout out Tom. Uh, the FT delivers award-winning in-depth reporting on a broad range of topics for more than 600 global correspondents. That's a lot. This results in a wealth of expertly crafted journalism covering news and politics, market moving events, careers, culture, and more. You can trust the FT's unique opinion, unrivaled analysis, and deep insight to give you and your organization the full perspective. The Financial Times has full coverage of the upcoming midterm elections and ask the question high stakes, high turnout. Everyone please vote. You can trust the FT's unique opinion, unrivaled analysis, and deep insight to give you the full perspective on the midterms, to trust its award-winning unbiased coverage. Visit FT.com slash podsave the world and check out the exclusive subscription offer. Again, that is FT.com slash podsave the world. Check it out. They have an exclusive offer, and the Financial Times is really good. I mean, it's great. It's, it's fantastic. It's just great reporting all Media around. So check them out. Podsave the World is also brought to you by Blue Apron. Stir-fried sweet chili chicken. Mm. Tomato and basil pesto pizza. Delicious. Seared steaks and homemade steak sauce. Could use some home cooking after being on the road, you know? Yeah. No Although, problem. let's be honest, we ate pretty well in Austin. Brisket round nine. Uh, those are this month's featured meals from Blue Apron. Brisket at the airport was excessive. <laughs> Let Blue Apron do the meal prep for you. At dinner in as little as 20 minutes. Every week, Blue Apron has at least three recipes built with your busy schedule in mind where Blue Apron has done the meal prep for you. They prepare the sauces, the spices, the ingredients. There are quick and easy recipe options with insanely delicious flavors. Perfectly portioned ingredients delivered right to your door. Skip meal planning and get straight to the cooking with Blue Apron. Whether you're looking for a quick and easy meal or a full culinary cooking experience, Blue Apron lets you choose from a range of recipe options. Get out of your cooking rut and experience the joy of new recipes like seared beef dumplings and jasmine rice. That does sound very good. Let's get some dumplings up Let's in get here. some dumplings tonight. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free at blueapron.com slash crooked world. That's blueapron.com slash crooked world to get your first three meals free. Blue Apron is a better way to cook. VotesaveAmerica.com.
1: Now we'll hear from Dan Feehan, who is running for Congress in Minnesota, who is a veteran of the Iraq War, also a former school teacher, and someone who really has excited a lot of uh, us around the country about uh, his potential for service, uh, so really excited to be joined by Dan. With us today on Pod Save the World, we are very lucky to have Dan Feehan, uh, who's running in the first district in Minnesota, a veteran of the United States military, did two tours in Iraq and also worked uh, at the Pentagon in a very important position on readiness issues uh, in the Obama administration. So, Dan, uh, thanks for joining us here today.
4: Dan, thanks so much for having me.
1: I wanted to just start, uh, I, you know, you're kind of in this post-9-11 generation of folks who signed up to serve after those attacks and now are serving in different ways. But I, I wondered if you could take us back to your, your first decision. What, what led you in those years after 9-11 to choose uh, the uniform as your, your form of service?
4: a great question. It, so I grew up here in southern Minnesota, and there's a lot of farmland here. It's it's a place where farms and communities rely on each other, and it's a place where people step up to help each other. And it, It's kind of that, that spirit and the value of public service. Uh, so I, on 9-11 itself, I was a college freshman at uh, Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., and so being a witness uh, directly, I mean, the, the Pentagon's just across the river from there. You, yeah. could, you could see it burning that day, and that was kind of my, my moment to, to step forward. And it was with this spirit and sense that it, this is this is a moment for my generation to, to step up and, and do something, and uh, not out of a, a spirit of, of vengeance, but out of a spirit of, you know, if not me, then who, uh, knowing yeah. that it, my country would clearly be going to war and, and wanting to be a part of making sure something like that didn't happen again, uh, so that. That was one of direct experience, but born of the the sense of where I came from uh, in Minnesota at the same time
1: yeah, and so then you know that leads you to Iraq w- which years uh, were you in Iraq in the military
4: yeah, two thousand and six and then again in two thousand eight, kind of the bookend of the of the surge time yeah uh, as as an army officer and as an engineer officer, so my my specific job and purpose that first time around was uh, roadside bombs it was IEDs yeah. uh, and Trying to figure out at the mo- you know, at the time how to stop them, how to how to find them, how to prevent them from uh, you know, hurting and killing both U.S. service members and, and civilians along the way. Uh, and then my second tour was as a uh, scout and sniper uh, platoon leader, so it, a different experience, but again in, in combat and uh, at the time trying to it was just the east of Satter City, uh, trying to figure out how to how to find insurgents how to how to find them before uh, they could plan for attacks and uh, and spent a year of my life uh, pretty much only in the working in the dark of night and again yeah. a very tough experience but working with incredible platoons of soldiers uh, from all different parts of the country all different types of backgrounds united in a, in a common purpose
1: yeah and I mean for our listeners uh, you know Dan was over there literally some of the toughest fighting of the Iraq war in oh6 and eight. And around Baghdad, uh, some of the toughest areas of the toughest fighting. So this is really in harm's way, as it were. Uh, Dan, you mentioned something that I I was going to ask, which is, you know, in this day and age of tribalism and division, you know, the military is one of the institutions in the country where people are mixed together—people from all over the country, different uh, races, ethnic groups, religions, political be- beliefs. You know, what do you think you learned about, you know, America uh, by being I- in that position uh, overseas, in harm's way, but with people from different parts of the United States, different backgrounds? So did it change your perspective on on your your country, your district, uh, to be over there with your fellow troops? Yes,
4: absolutely. I mean, the, the U.S. military is is more diverse than the country itself, and it is uh, filled with with people that you know you you may not have a chance to interact with otherwise in in life. And I think about my first platoon in particular. I mean, I'm I'm 23 years old at the time, and this platoon. I like to think back, and there was there was no consensus on the best uh, energy drink, on the best yeah. cigarette, yeah. On the best anything when it came to that. But they're you know put in a place to try to figure out how to stop roadside bombs was this incredibly uniting force and in in an ability to kind of put your, any differences you might have aside and to do it in a sense that, you know, even though I was the platoon leader, doing so with the ideas of my non-commissioned officers and of making sure people's ideas could come forward. And, you know, I think about that experience every single day because I, I would go on to, I was, a, I was a middle school math teacher as well yeah. uh, for a couple of years, and then working in the Pentagon, and it was because of that first experience that you you realize that the toughest things in life are done with a group of people that are diverse and who have different viewpoints. And your job is still to get something done in spite of that. And that certainly was what working in the Pentagon was. Uh, and that, that takes that same perspective on, on leadership is what I take and hope to take into elected office, too. Because yeah. I, when you look at the House of Representatives today, it is a place of dysfunction. It, it is a place where people where they see disagreement and take no further action uh yeah. that they are are satisfied with simply blaming each other and get nothing done and that that flies in the face of what public service is to me it, it is the responsibility to get things done on behalf of the people that you are responsible for yeah uh, and so that's that is was a, the most important experience I could have in my early 20s, uh, was to have that leadership experience.
1: Yeah, well, and I was going to ask you about, you know, your decision to run and to run this year. You know, what's interesting is, you know, for some people, you know, running for Congress is the toughest thing <laughs> that they're going to do. You've done something far tougher, right? You made a decision to put on the uniform at a time when you knew you were going to go to war. How do you compare the decision to run for Congress this year? You know, what informed that decision? And Is that a continuum of your past service, or or do you see it as a totally new chapter?
4: Yeah, it's a continuation. I mean, but it's done with different perspective. I mean, yeah, it's campaign trail is without a doubt it's hard. Uh, Every day is an up and down. Every day is a roller coaster, and you know, attack ads and things like that. You just what I'm lucky enough to have at this point is a is a matter of perspective. You know, that I've I've been through worse, and that's the the type of thing that you you rely on and when I think about you know, that, that first motivation to serve or growing up here uh, in the first place, it is the importance of remembering you know, who or why you're doing this in the first place. And it's with the sense, now looking back, Okay, two tours in Iraq, being a, a middle school teacher, serving the Pentagon, I now step forward into politics with the belief and knowledge that when someone does step forward, they, they can make a difference. You can make a difference. A leader can make a difference in a war. You can make a difference in very trying circumstances. And so Politics is public service, too, if you you keep that as your mindset. And if you do so now with... You know my my decision to run came very much at this time out of looking at a, a 2016 landscape that didn't represent the a- ideals that i had fought for uh, for example and i looked at a congress satisfied with inaction and i looked at a congress that wasn't very representative of of my own life i mean i'm i'm a millennial yeah. i have student loan debt and, and i had uh, the chance to serve in uniform and i look at the inaction in washington dc and you step forward with the belief that no, I think my voice would matter i think I think the experience that I have would matter, and I think viewing this as public service matters too because that's that's not done nearly enough among the the people uh, who are supposed to be serving us right now
1: yeah, no, and I think that's the exciting opportunity that we have uh, that you articulate really well and I guess you know you've got the national security background, obviously you're talking about voters' concerns about health care, I'm sure and rising costs and in, in the economy on the national security front, what's been interesting to me to watch is that, you know, this was about war and terrorism for so many years. You know, Trump has kind of turned national security into also issues of immigration and identity so that, you know, you hear him talking about MS-13, about people coming across the border as kind of these national security issues. How do you see what the role of national security is in your district? Is it the concern about immigration? Is it a concern about terrorism? And how do you come up with the smart and right solutions on those issues while kind of speaking to some of the fears that that Trump is tapping into about whether it's the potential for terrorists to come here or uncontrolled immigration? You know, how do you find the way to to speak to the concerns of your voters in this climate where Trump is really broadening what constitutes national security?
4: Yeah, the biggest, broadest uh, thing that I've tried to speak to that speaks to what both my my own lived experiences but also what the reality is here there's there's forty thousand plus military veterans in the district and what i have tried to represent from the get-go because i think it does tie into these are other issues and conversations especially the cost of health care is raising the, the the fact that we now have been at war as a country for 17 straight years yeah and when you raise the idea that the war in afghanistan for example is now old enough to enlist with its parents permission and you, you represent that in a way that makes a connection to what are many military families or certainly people who know uh, members of the military, you're able to make a case that there, there is a role, if not now, then absolutely it needs to be soon for Congress to step into this conversation and shoulder the burden that it's meant to do, shoulder that burden of, of deciding whether or not we should uh, continue to send our service members into harm's way. And to make that from both a place when I I talk about my own son being able to fight in the same war at some point that that I fought in, you make that very personal connection, and then you make it in a a broader one and and speak to the idea that if we were able to end the war on terror right now, uh, it would be to the cost in tune of $5 trillion when you add up everything into it. And be able to talk about this in a sense that that connects, in, in my view, in a different way that doesn't fit a normal Democrat or Republican stereotype, but speaks about it in a way that I, I hope the Democratic Party moves along to this idea that the strongest military we can have is one that we are not constantly using, uh, yeah. for example. And that... I'm. I'm we're able to make a connection with to people in a way that might not always be thinking about foreign policy or national security, but ground it in a way that is very much a national security issue, our, our military's strength being based on, on the idea of, of whether or not it's engaged in war.
1: Yeah. Well, look, I think uh, races like the Minnesota First are going to determine the direction of the House. Folks are looking for someone to, to pitch in and help out and knock on doors and make calls and contributions. Dan, you know, is the antidote to a lot of talking to you, it's refreshing to hear the absence of cynicism and the vision for what both Congress should do and what our politics can be. So uh, best of luck to you, and uh, and hopefully we'll do our part to help you get across that finish line. So thanks for joining us, man.
4: Dan, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on.
0: Pod Save the World is brought to you by Quip. Wow, a Quip ad without its sexual innuendos. <laughs> How will we get through it? One of the most important things we do for our health every day is brushing our teeth, yet most of us don't do it properly. Quip is a better electric toothbrush created by dentists and designers. Quip was designed to make brushing your teeth more simple, affordable, and even enjoyable. Have, being on the road for this long and using a regular old toothbrush and not having my Quip electric toothbrush Oh, really? See, I, sucked. I, I brought mine because they give you that little portable tube. I know. Where you put, I should keep it clean. Just remembered, you but know I what's didn't. gross is when you just chuck your old gross toothbrush in the DOP kit like 400 times in a row and it just sits in the filth in that thing. I do have a little cover for it. Quip, God. man. Quip. Sometimes people brush too hard. Some electric toothbrushes are too abrasive. This one has a built in two minute timer which pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides, helping guide a full and even clean. See? See,
4: you didn't have to
0: up to 90% of us don't brush for a full 2 minutes or don't clean evenly. Quip doesn't require a clunky charger and runs for 3 months oh, on time see? on one charge. Take note me. Brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist recommended schedule every 3 months for just 5 bucks. Quip is one of the first electric toothbrushes accepted by the American Dental Association and has thousands of verified 5-star reviews. Say why you love Quip. We've been doing it. I've been doing it because I do. That's why it's the best. They're backed by over 20,000 dental professionals. Quip starts at just 25 bucks, and you can go to getquip.com slash crookedworld right now. Get your first free refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash crookedworld. Getquip.com slash crookedworld. Check it out. Pod Save the World is also brought to you by Rockstar. Rockstar Games, creators of the critically acclaimed and record-breaking Grand Theft Auto series... I remember that. ...are back with their latest blockbuster, Red Dead Redemption 2. God, I remember playing Grand Theft Auto for like 14 hours in a row and leaving my house and thinking I should like steal a car. Red Dead Redemption 2 is an epic tale of honor and loyalty set in the dying days of America's outlaw era and told across the deepest and most expansive rockstar world to date. Set in 1899, you play as Arthur Morgan. Senior Enforcer of the notorious Vanderlind Gang, a group of outlaws, on the run as they rob, fight, and steal their way across America in order to survive. As Rockstar's first game built completely from the ground up for the latest generation of hardware, Red Dead Redemption 2 uses the power of new consoles to create an experience that's not just open, but deeper, more immersive, and more interactive than ever. Whoa. Yeah, not leaving the house people experience a new kind of story as you live the life of outlaw Arthur Morgan in Red Dead Redemption 2 on sale October 26th with PlayStation 4 and Xbox One that makes me nervous because that's before the elections and love it is so excited to play this game that oh, don't uh, we t- might lose him for a let's bit. sub in something okay. that just, tells <laughs> okay. just him pre-order now at
1: rockstargames.com slash Red Dead Redemption 2 rated M for mature and now we'll be joined by Andy Kim who was a colleague of mine for a time at the White House had one of the toughest jobs imaginable, he was responsible for Iraq um, when we intervened there uh, to take the fight uh, to ISIS and to roll back ISIS. I mean, he served in the Pentagon. He's been to Afghanistan to serve. And now he's stepping up to serve in New Jersey, in part because he was so angry at the Republican effort to take away health care coverage for people with pre-existing conditions. So happy to join by Andy Kemp. Andy, uh, thanks for, uh, for joining us here today on Pod Save the World. Thanks a lot, Ben, for having me. So, Andy, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background of service, and particularly, like, what led you to go down the route of getting into public service and working in particular on, on national security? What was kind of your decision point and, and motivation for that?
3: Well, I, I grew up here in South Jersey, um, you know, right down the road, uh, not too far away from joint military base McGuire-Dix-Lakehurst. Um, there are a lot of people in this area that uh, work at that joint base. So, you know, I certainly had a lot of friends uh, growing up whose parents worked at that base or worked in uh, defense industries. So, definitely a big part of this district. But growing up in that way, um, you know, I'm my parents were both people that pushed uh, service, public service. My mother's a nurse. Uh, my dad uh, is someone who uh, dedicated his whole life to trying to cure cancer and Alzheimer's. So they always told me this line growing up that service isn't just a job, it's a way of life. And that was something I very much internalized growing up. And for me, I felt like my way to be a best service is in national security. I was in college when September 11th happened, uh, something that was uh, obviously so important for our, our nation, especially for my generation. Being at that time, I really wanted to dedicate my career to Tackling these challenges that we faced on foreign policy and on national security. So I ended up getting a Rhodes Scholarship, going and getting a doctorate in international relations, and then joined up at the State Department, worked as a diplomat and a national security official, Um, had the great opportunity to work as a strategic advisor to General Petraeus and General Allen out in Afghanistan. Uh, worked over at the Pentagon, uh, USAID, the State Department, and then uh, ended my time doing two years as the Director for Iraq at the White House National Security Council. These were incredible opportunities working under both uh, Republicans and Democrats
1: yeah, I guess you know I obviously interacted with you a bit when you were at the White House, and you had this tough position of basically having the responsibility for you know Iraq and and parts of the Middle East that were dealing with the rise of ISIS when we had to you know put together you know, the coalition to begin to push back against ISIS but also to intervene in Iraq to prevent you know, potential genocide against a minority population there, uh, the Yazidis. My recollection of that is, is getting that sense that if the United States hadn't done something, this whole group of people could have been wiped out and ISIS could have kind of overrun much more of Iraq. I wonder if you could reflect on that appreciation you get for like the difference that America can play in people's lives on the other side of the world. You know, what it was like to have that weight of people coming to you, in this case, people who were threatened by ISIS, and literally asking you to save the lives of their family members and their community members, and and also to deal with this huge threat to our national security, ISIS. You know, how did your view of what America could do in the world change, you know, having to sit in those rooms and and make
3: those calls? I think about this a lot. When I wrote my dissertation, a lot of my studies was about uh, the U.S. response Uh, to different crises, whether that was the Rwanda genocide, uh, Yugoslavia, Srebrenica, and understanding what role the National Security Council can play, what role the White House could play, and then finding myself in a situation, working in the Situation Room, working uh, at the White House on these issues when a crisis occurs of this magnitude, when we see the potential for genocide against the Z D people, it was so overwhelming and having contact with uh, Yazidis who had family members and friends back in Iraq who were being uh, massacred by being targeted, murdered by ISIS. It was uh, uh, something that just heightened that urgency of what was happening and trying to figure out what best can the United States do to be able to address this genocide that was about to unfold. You know, I remember that day very clearly, uh, in early August in 2014, and being in the Situation Room, being in the Oval Office, briefing the President on the plan how to drop, uh, to do airdrops, uh, humanitarian assistance to tens of thousands of Yazidis on top of that mountain. And the story I often talk about this is just remembering those conversations and thinking, uh, what is it that the United States can get done? And the fact that we were able to take these actions And within just a matter of 24 hours, drop uh, the food and water, um, shelter material to tens of thousands of people on a mountain on the other side of the world, deep in enemy territory on the top of a mountaintop. It was extraordinary. Uh, It was uh, very humbled by the abilities that the United States has, the, the tremendous power that comes with it and the responsibility that is layered on top of that. And seeing so many people in the situation room and across government working together for common cause was very inspiring. I would say that I saw a government that can inspire. I saw a government that the American people can be proud of taking actions to be able to help save lives and stop a genocide.
1: You know, and it's interesting hearing you talk. I mean, obviously, you helped then put together this very necessary effort to essentially go to war against ISIS and to try to take out their safe havens, prevent them from threatening the United States. Uh, You've also seen, you know, both when you're in the White House, and I'm sure on the campaign trail, you know, how much uh, fear can be manipulated by political leaders. And we see Trump doing this frequently, whether it's fear of ISIS, fear of refugees, fear of immigrants, I guess if you could talk about how do you balance the very real need to take seriously threats like ISIS, right, and to say there is something to be afraid of here that we have to take care of versus how that can go too far and then that can lead to scapegoating whole populations or policies that kind of divide us as Americans, a travel ban comes to mind. You know, what has been your perspective as someone who's been both, you know, a policy maker and now a politician? About how you get that balance right between doing what's necessary to protect the country, but not having fear being used as something that can divide us in, in ways that you know may be happening in, in your district.
3: Well, th- looking back to what we were just talking about with the discussions in the Situation Room and the Oval Office when faced with a genocide of the ZD people, I think about that and I remember that you know at no point during those discussions did anyone ask, "Is that a Democrat idea or a Republican idea?" Yeah. I very much came into national security and was taught that the last place that partisan politics belongs is in national security. And that belief is something I hold very deep inside myself. When I worked out in Afghanistan, no one there asked me if I was a Democrat or Republican. So this idea that national security can and should be looked at uh, through that very particular lens— Devoid of the partisan politics that has consumed so much of our country, so much of our politics in Washington, D.C., to try to have people approach it in that way. I think it's so important. And I think that so many of the other challenges that we're facing, especially on the, on the global stage, are getting murky and, and having these problems because of the injection of partisan politics where they don't belong.
1: Yeah. And I think about the other side, you know, there's the national security issues that, as you say, are kind of local because people could be sent to harm's way or because there's just a a large population of veterans who care about these things. There's also kind of what America is as a country, who we stand for. And I'm wondering, you know, we've obviously all been following the situation with the journalist Jamal Khashoggi, clearly seems to have been likely murdered by the Saudi government. You know, you worked on this region, of the world understanding the complexities of dealing with a, a regime like Saudi Arabia that, you know, is contrary to many of our values at times we share some interest with. At the same time, you're out there talking to Americans about, you know, how they may be responding to what's in the news. They might not care about something that's happening around the world or maybe they do kind of react with horror at what happened to this journalist. When you look at that particular issue, how important is it, do you think, for the United States to bring its own values into that question of like what should our relationship be with the Saudis? How should we respond to the murder of this journalist? It's not a bread and butter issue, right, for somebody in in South Jersey, but it it is something that matters because it's a reflection of kind of what our values are as a country. How does that inform like your view of of how the U.S. should respond to an issue like that? How much should we make our values a part of our our foreign policy, and, and how do we? you know, communicate who we are as a country in dealing with such difficult and complicated issues?
3: It's very important. You know, it's very important for us to understand what values we hold dear to us as a nation and what we want to project, what we want to be able to extend going forward as we engage with countries around this world. As someone who is a, I remember engaging with Afghans or Iraqis and um, out in Kirkuk, Iraq, or out in Kabul, Afghanistan. Uh, it's so important for us to uh, bring to that table the values that are drive our nation and that being an anchor of our foreign policy and our national security. And especially at a time right now when I think so much of the rest of the world and as well as so much within our own country, we're having this discussion about what we stand for and what we should be uh, trying to move forward on. So whether it is on us pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreement, or how we treat uh, our allies and partners, um, our NATO alliance—you know, so much of that is in question. And I think that's why, you know, this this is incident with Khashoggi and a number of other instances and incidents that come up—you know, why they grab our attention is because right now, this question of what the United States stands for, what role we play internationally is is so much in flux, more than I've ever seen in in my lifetime, Um, certainly in this uh, post-September 11th world that I've grown up in. um, We we see so much of that uncertain what our next step is going to be as a country, what footing we're going to have going forward, and how that's going to affect other countries and, and other interests. So I think that's what I see right now happening is Each of these actions that are happening, whether it's about the Paris Climate Agreement or or this response to what's happening with Saudi Arabia, these are all bigger than just those instances. This is us trying to discuss and, and understand what our next steps are and, and what our country is going to be standing for. And frankly, also a lot of other countries are trying to get a sense of what the United States is doing and what's going to be coming up next. And that's why uh, these issues uh, take on a, a greater significance across our country.
1: And, you know, if you get into Congress, then what, what do you think the role of Congress is? You know, Congress has been obviously totally uh, Republican-led Congress, kind of passive under Trump. You know, how do you see the role of Congress in in communicating what America is, what we stand for, what kind of policies we want to pursue in this national security space?
3: One thing I often think back on is this uh, one moment in the Situation Room that just really lingers in my mind. You know, I remember uh, the the cabinet assemble briefing the president, President Obama, about a particular operation. And I remember as uh, Chairman Dempsey was briefing something, he stopped and said, uh, you know, but there's no guarantees how this will all turn out. And I remember writing down a line that the the president said, and at the time I didn't really think too much of its significance. But I remember the president kind of putting his finger on the table and saying, "The one thing I never ask for in this room is a guarantee." And I remember writing that down in the margins of my notebook, and it's something that I think about a lot now, every single day. Is I'm trying to understand the role that the United States plays and and particularly on the on the international stage, And a idea that you know in the Situation Room or in the White House, you know, arguably the most powerful building in the world, to say that you know, what we can't ask for is a guarantee. It's for me this understand that there's a difference between power and control. You know, there's this difference between understand what what we can influence as a country across the world, and also what, what a difference between what we can control. And I think it's very easy to get caught up in the idea and that hubris of being able to control things around the world, um, especially when you're at the White House and you have the ability to marshal you know, our military resources, our diplomatic resources, our intelligence operations. Um, it's certainly easy to conflate the two between power and control. Now, what's important for Congress to play a role, you know, for instance, if elected and, and able to, I'd like to serve on the House Armed Services Committee. You know that's a place in which, um, you know, Congress can act as a check that we can have that type of public discussion and be able to bring a lot of these national security discussions to the American people. That's something that I want to I wish we had done more of, um, and I wish I was able to do more of when I was working at the White House is now that I'm in- talking to, people in my community every single day. And, and frankly, we talk a lot about national security issues and we talk a lot about what we can control, what we can influence. I really think it's important that Congress has those discussions with people back in their home districts. I know a lot of people say that you know elections aren't necessarily about foreign policy and national security. But also the role of a representative is to inform the constituents and talk to them about what's happening then in Washington, D.C., and to see just a lack of that conversation happening, you know, the lack of ways in which the American people get information about what's happening internationally. Uh, I don't think that, uh, you know, just uh, some press briefings and, and engagements from that front in sort of the normal political channels is enough I think there's a lot more that we should be doing. And I think it's important that a member of Congress takes that upon themselves. And that's certainly something that I want to do, both as a, if I'm able to, as a member of the House Armed Services Committee to play that role within Congress, but bring that information out to the American people in as many different ways as we can.
1: Well, look, that's a great note to end on. Thanks for joining us. And uh, for those of you out there looking for people to support, you know, Andy's in the third district of New Jersey there. It's a true toss up. Uh, the kind of seat that if it flips, it can make a big difference in the direction of the country. So a great place to uh, spend your time, your, your calls, your knocking on doors, your, your contributions. Uh, and we're just grateful that uh, you got in the ring there, Andy. And uh, good luck in the next homestretch here.
3: Great. Thanks a lot, Ben, for having me. So thanks for
1: listening. That was three really exciting candidates uh, who make me feel better about both who we have running the Democratic Party and our chances uh, in November and the Congress that we'll have in place. Tommy will be back next week, so you can hear him. I will be back at some point, and excited to continue this conversation going. And don't forget to tune in to HBO Fridays at 11 for the next couple weeks uh, to see the guys as they continue to try to fire people up on the road here to the midterms. And, And remember, get out there and vote. In many of your states, early voting is underway. So thanks for listening.